0: Welcome everybody to Try Not To Blink, a podcast about the ups and downs, the ins and outs, news, tips, and tricks of those who live the optometry lifestyle. We'd like to thank the amazing people at Valley Contacts who have made this podcast possible. Of course, they're makers of stellar gas permeable lenses and the oh so incredible custom stable scleral lens. In case you're wondering, I'm on the East Coast and I'm Dr. James Diem. I'm joined by my uber talented co-host, who is repping the West Coast, Dr. Roya Habibi. Roya, what is up? Hey,
1: friends. We have a super unique podcast for you tonight, and we are really excited to share. Jimmy, you want to tell everyone about it? I feel rude to just steal well,
0: the thunder. yeah, you know, um, I was a big fan of the show ER back in the 90s, and uh, there were some amazing doctors on there, and uh, so this person has nothing to do with that show, <laughs> but uh, he uh, is an ER doctor, and he has uh, a really big uh, podcast, actually, a big following. He's been doing it for uh, quite some time. And uh, for a decade or more, I believe. Um, and he's just a very, very talented, uh, well-spoken, uh, uh, just uh, rock star He's a rock. He's just. He's, he's just. I, I can't come up with Podcaster? any better- He's a. He's a. He's a maniac podcast star. <laughs> podcast star. And um, you know he he's willing to spend some time with us goofballs. Uh, why? Because. As many of our listeners know, uh, the eyeballs are just totally spooky when it comes to uh, ER docs and urgent care docs. So October is what month?
1: It's our spooky month, and you know, so it just makes sense. Why doesn't it, it? All of us hear some of the the common problems, and we think, oh, an eye infection, a pink eye. Man, no, not that exciting, but. Basically, every other doc is terrified of the eye in a weird way, not terrified, but just they, they don't necessarily have the same tools as us. And maybe how we get to see them, we have more time to think about it. Uh, but regardless, it's I think you guys are all going to be really excited to hear about the flip side perspective of what a, common problems that uh, doctors in the ER face regarding the eyes and kind of listening to us trouble through troubleshoot through how to best deal with that.
0: Yeah, you know, um talking to him was was funny and I'm thinking to myself, you know, our our listeners going to be interested in this? And I said, absolutely. This is the inside mind of what is going on in ER doctors across the United States. And, you know, I think as frontline primary eye care providers, uh, you know, we should be dealing with ERs and engaging them and educating them and learning from them. And, and you know, so, so we have a good time. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to share the conversation with everybody. So shall we jump into it? Let's do it. Hey guys, I uh, am so excited to have been on the podcast here with uh, ER extraordinaire, Rob. How do I say your last name, Rob?
2: Orman. Rob Orman. And you're an emergency room doctor. That is correct. My
0: goodness. And how long you been doing that?
2: Uh, I graduated med school in 95 and residency in 99. So just depending on if I was like a legit doctor after med school, which I wasn't, and then uh, <laughs> after training, which I was. So about 20 years.
0: And you're a professional podcaster by day.
2: Yeah, professional podcaster by day and night. And now I do my clinical shifts to keep that legitimate, right? <laughs> <I> keep doing <laughs> clinical work. So totally the tail wagging the dog now.
0: So really, really thank you for teaching us a lot about podcasting, of course. You have like 1,300,075, last one I checked, uh, listeners. Um, so we're, <laughs> we're, trying, we're trying very hard to emulate all of the success that, that you've had. Uh, but one of the things we like to do is we like to ask ridiculous questions of our guests. And we, were, we are your guests as well, but we still would like to ask you some ridiculous questions. So without further ado, Roya, would you like to hit him up with some ridiculous questions?
1: Rob, it's a simple one, I'd say, but what, if you had to define yourself, is your spirit animal?
2: My spirit okay. animal. That was... Uh,
1: Defines your... Sp- yeah, I was just... Yeah. That's
2: funny. I was just reading this in Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, and he asked Jocko Willing. said, Jocko, he's a Navy SEAL, does the Jocko podcast, Jocko, what is your spirit animal? And yes, Jocko's replies, negative, negative. What the fuck is a spirit animal? <laughs> okay. My spirit animal. Um, I'm going to say, well, I'd like to say the snow leopard so that- Ooh, I, that's it, a good it, one. No one's ever said that. Well, Everybody's an eagle. I'd like to say the snow leopard, but it's probably a labradoodle.
0: Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice.
2: But it's All right, but, jolly. Okay, but it's my labradoodle. Everyone
1: likes
0: you.
2: My labradoodle who's like totally totally chill, not when he like a spaz when he was a puppy, but he just like, you know, he's chill.
0: How about a snow lab- labradoodle?
2: Oh, that's what a I snow am. I'm a snow labradoodle. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's
0: okay, amazing. so you're on a stranded island. All you can eat is pizza. What is the topping you're going to have on it?
2: Pineapple.
1: What? You are something no. special.
0: I knew this was going to be good. A pineapple <laughs> pizza yeah, loving. Oh, absolutely. So and the second choice would be
2: would be olive and mushroom. Black olive and mushroom. He didn't even
0: I, think about that. That's a decent it.
2: choice. That's no. a real answer. No, it's just that taste of the pizza with the pineapple. It's kind of like, you know, when Michael Jackson reigned supreme, people either loved him or hated him. It's just like pineapple on pizza, and I love it.
1: Nice. Fair enough. You got to know what you like. Okay. I mean, you've been working in the ER for 20 years now. What comes into the ER? It can be common or not, but you're like, yes, I love seeing
2: this problem. Without question, it's (laughs) reptile foreign bodies. There is absolutely no hesitation because it's always an interesting story. And you get to relieve somebody's suffering in a very quick and immediate way.
0: Rob, okay. Listen, I am dead serious right now. (laughs) Stop. I'm dead yeah. ass serious, and I'm I'm not being goofy there. That wasn't supposed to be punny. Dead ass serious. <laughs> so listen, bro. How often are you pulling things from people's buttholes? I need to know. This.
2: It seems to come in spurts. So it's been I don't know a year, <laughs> so to speak. It's been a year or two, really, since since I've done that. But sometimes you'll have two or three in a year. Serious
1: bummer, huh? Waiting right now for the next. <laughs>
2: I, I know, right? There's so much job dissatisfaction because I, I haven't seen that for a while. But uh, yeah.
0: He's gloving up. Watch out.
2: You know, and perhaps <laughs> it's that people are getting wiser to this and, you know, using devices which are more easily retrieved because earlier in my career, <laughs> we'd see it all the time, all the time. Sometimes, you know, I, every couple of weeks you would see that. But, uh, but oh now it's I've... not as common.
0: Wow.
1: I have so many questions. I'm speechless. But I'm cut that off. I don't know what to <laughs> what say.
2: Roya, I'm feel free. Feel free.
1: <laughs> okay, I have to ask one more question on that note. Like, what's your favorite thing you removed? <laughs>
2: yes. I don't know. I don't know that favorite thing removed.
1: Uh, like, best story, I guess. Best.
2: Um, I would say an industrial size can of oven cleaner. Or would it be a, a spray bottle, spray can? Yeah.
0: Oh, oh my! That god. When, I'm, I'm all so the way puckered to the, right now. It's ridiculous. Went all the
2: way to the splenic flexure.
0: Oh my! If god. I knew what that was, I'm sure I would be in awe. It's
2: it's <laughs> it's, it's getting close to armpit area.
0: Oh god! It's right below the iris. <laughs> right, yeah, it is
2: below the iris for sure.
0: Holy hoot, nanny! Oh my goodness! So wrap us up, Jimmy. Ra- Rob you you for whatever reason did not get into medical school and you were not going to be an er doctor but you still are is extremely uh you know talented and infectious personality just like you are now uh and and you weren't gonna be a podcaster but you were gonna do the number two what is the number two rob profession
2: what high school science be? high school science teacher without question i was beautiful i would if i but the Alternate choice if I wasn't in medicine would be some kind of radio, uh, you know, in interviewing, etc. But if that's taken out of it, yeah, teaching for sure. And who knows, maybe down the road that'll still happen as like a third career. But uh, I have yeah thought periodically about getting a teaching degree and doing that. But this way, I get to teach a lot more people, and I don't have to wake up as early every day.
1: That's awesome. You know, another thing that comes up, at least in our world, that I'd love to hear is uh, questions or things that you may get repeatedly calls from eye doctors that you wish maybe you could give a little educational spiel on. So one, one thing in particular that I feel maybe a little like is controversial is for us, we've now started to check eye pressure or excuse me, blood pressure kind of as a meaningful use data point, but if we measure a blood pressure that is in a malignant range, we have a sort of an obligation, I suppose, to send patients to the ER. How do you feel about that as an ER doc?
2: Yeah, it's a hard one. And the first one is that there's really not a true evidence-based definition of what a malignant range really is because there's no blood pressure in general, if you take the whole population, that is, that's, that's too high. There's the effect that that blood pressure has, which is the hypertensive emergency. And one of the challenges with this is that there's all sorts of different guidelines that have contradictory advice and different terminology. And the way that, that, that I see this is that, high, that blood, elevated blood pressure is broken down into three parts. And the, I guess what, uh, a frustration that, that we feel is that people get sent into the emergency department with asymptomatic elevated blood pressure. So the blood pressure, when it's a hypertensive emergency, causing end organ damage, is going to cause problem to the eye, the heart, the brain and the kidney, the four main areas of destruction in that hypertensive emergency. And there's all sorts of complexity as to why that happens. So that is the real emergency. So you could have somebody who's got a blood pressure of 220 over 120, and they're just, they feel totally fine, totally fine. And think, oh gosh, what do I do with this? Well, I'll tell you what we generally do with that patient when they come to the emergency department is we just watch them for a while and we say oh let's see what happens to your blood pressure and that's been studied uh you know what happens to these patients and usually they regress to the mean their blood pressure comes back to you know where their blood pressure is i don't know maybe they they were freaked out initially when they had their blood pressure taken to the doctor's office or you know the white coat syndrome or whatever so That patient is different than the one who's having neurologic symptoms, chest pain or shortness of breath, eye complaints, or you look in your eye and you see hemorrhage or you see something else that's concerning. The one that you cannot pick up is the kidney, you know, which you'd need a creatinine or you, or a urinalysis. usually going to be a creatinine. So that's, that's kind of a hard one, but in somebody who is asymptomatic, they don't necessarily need an immediate workup elevated blood pressure for most people causes problems over years, not over hours, minutes, or even days. So I think that just watching someone and seeing what happens with their blood pressure would be step one to see you know where it goes. Is it rising? Is it falling? Do they have any symptoms? Neurologic symptoms, cardiac symptoms, eye symptoms or I mean, you guys are in the unique position. You can actually look at their eye and see if there's something bad going on. So the hypertensive emergency, when we see that person who has end organ damage and a severely increased blood pressure, we get their blood pressure down in the next hour or two. That is an emergency. We put them on an IV drip and admit them to the ICU. Everyone else falls into kind of a gray category. Most of those people are uncontrolled severe hypertension. They're either on meds or they're not on meds. The most important thing for them is good follow-up at some point with their primary care doctor to talk about starting antihypertensive medication for the long term.
1: Yeah, There's I guess a, I guess sometimes ahead. we have the perspective of like they're just like you probably worry about follow-up some and we all worry about follow-up, of course, especially something that's not exactly in our field. And so I think some doctors have the perspective of like, if I send them to the ER, it's going to scare them and they're going to realize this is something that's very important. <laughs> but that's also them sitting around and waiting a long time in the, in the hospital.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a, there's a couple things to that. Um, you know, there were, you had that hypertensive emergency, the, the really sick ones. Then you've got the uncontrolled severe hypertension, which is almost everybody else. Then you've got this this middle group, which is oftentimes the ones that you might be seeing in the eye clinic, somebody with cataracts, and they probably have something else. Heart failure, angina, some chronic renal failure, previous stroke. They've got a history of previous end organ damage that puts them at risk for something worse happening. Like those, you know, a little bit more concerned about. This is someone you say they've got a hypertensive urgency um, sure. that and really this has to do with our comfort level like ah oh God you know what what are you gonna do with that so even we kind of wring our hands as far as what to do with that middle group there's not a particular number for anybody to say yep you absolutely have to be admitted you absolutely have to go to the ER you absolutely have to get testing it has to do with the symptoms and uh, you know and their comorbidities but to the point of you know you go to the emergency department, to kind of get the fear of God put into you so that you understand what the, the seriousness of this blood pressure is. Well, that's, that's, that's one way of seeing it. I, how, how we would see that when that person comes in is you know they need a full H and P, full evaluation, documentation, nursing time, a room time. And so that's an opportunity cost for the patients who's having an MI in the waiting room that that room is being used for something that maybe they could have followed up with their primary care doctor, maybe they didn't need to be seen emergently. So yes, coming into the emergency department is definitely, uh, you know, something that impacts somebody's life. But it's expensive. There's, yep. you know, uh, there's, you know, costs for us that it takes our time, and it's also time away from, you know, another patient who might have an acute life threat. Now that being said, you know we're seeing elevated blood pressure. All the time, and it's like are very comfortable with watching it in the emergency department because we got the resources to do stuff if there's a problem. So it's easy for me to say, yeah, you know, only the patients who have X, Y, Z they should uh, they they should they should be the only ones that come in. But I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Um, But if you have somebody with a blood pressure that makes you uncomfortable, uh, and that number. Is not a number that I can tell you. For some people, it's 200 over 100 or 220 over 120 or 250 over 150. That's pretty damn high. Uh, you know, we are always there as a resource and we'll take every patient, of course. And if it, so, I would say that if you have a blood pressure that makes you uncomfortable, and maybe you have set criteria for this, maybe not, uh, you should make a point of contact with somebody right their primary yep. care doctor it's like Absolutely. oh let's get you some follow-up if they have symptoms send them in the er right away if you can't get anybody to take care of them then yeah we're the emergency department is always there say so like all right well, we'll watch you we'll see if you have any end organ dysfunction and then maybe we'll just discharge you home maybe we'll do that so i don't have a definite answer for that but i think that there is a fear of the number itself that doesn't take into consideration what hypertension really is, you know, a long term cardiovascular risk factor. Absolutely. Generally, not an acute issue except in that smaller group of patients. Definitely. I don't know if that answers the question or if it just allowed me to get a lot of polemicism <laughs> off of my chest.
1: That was, <laughs> no, I think that was honestly,
0: good. <laughs> I, I think it was a great explanation and, uh, really helps a lot and I think it'll help a lot of our listeners. I I'm just sitting here thinking how beautiful of a parallel, you know, the whole glaucoma eye pressure conversation is to this conversation. It's almost exactly the same. Just change glaucoma and blood pressure, right? It's something we're very used to seeing the numbers don't bother us so so much. Um, but you guys see something, you know, a little elevated, a little possibly, and it concerns you, right? You know, cuz cuz you're taught that it might be uh, uh angle closure. This person's gonna go blind. Well, we're taught when somebody's eye pressure or uh, blood pressure is above two hundred, um, that's really the number that I think of two hundred over a hundred or two hundred over even ninety five. That this person is at risk for a stroke and is it might they might die if they don't die in your yeah. chair. They're gonna die on the way home. So get them to the ER. Don't ask, call. That's what we're <laughs> taught. You know, that's that's just and and um. You know, I think what you're saying is is perfect because it just puts it all in the perspective. Well, why, why are we calling? Who's at risk? Um, and contact somebody, maybe the ER isn't the right place, but, um, it also might be and get somebody else involved. So maybe you don't have to be the last one to make that decision.
2: Exactly. I, and I, I love that parallel that you made about the inadvertent parallel that I made about (laughs) (laughs) so with the eye pressure, because I guarantee you, I am not going to be the last point of contact on that patient with elevated blood pressure uh, with, of elevated eye pressure, nor am I going to send them out from the ED without calling you to say, what the heck do I do with this thing? Because I'm crapping my pants. Yeah. No fit. Now that's figurative, not literal. And if Good. I did, I I'd, I'd, I'd wash my hands. I think they yeah. have diapers at the ER, don't they? <laughs> don't you guys have the
0: bedside commodes? I mean, you crap your pants if you yeah. want to. Be you know, cool. I did,
2: I used a diaper last night. I was, uh, I was irrigating a laceration and I, it was, you know, we had a big bucket and everything and it was, it was super bloody and gross okay, and it oh. was on a young patient and I used a diaper as my secondary collection system and the patient left the emergency department. So I heard someone go in the room. It's like, why, why is that young man wearing diapers? <laughs> <laughs> why not? Just, back to, back to the eyes. Oh, I'm so much more comfortable asking the question than answering the question. I'm kind of sweating from that last one. Uh, you did such a good job. <laughs> so, got a patient with a sty, a hordeolum, and what'd you call me? I I, I called you a hordeolum <laughs> with an H, my friend. Oh, no man. W. There's no W in there. <laughs> Although that is the mnemonic I used on to remember that versus the chalazion with the infectious disease aspect of the. Uh, of, of the hordeolum, So got a patient with the hordeolum. They come and see, let's say they come and see us and they have put warm packs on. They've done it in a very uh, uh, educated way. They're leaving it on for 10 minutes at a time. Let's say they've been doing some lid massage. They even use some topical antibiotics. I don't know if that's actually going to have any kind of benefit, but it's, but nothing's worked. And then you think, gosh, this thing looks kind of nasty. Should I drain this thing Externally. So I guess there's a two-part question. One is, is that, is that a good uh, approach, general approach to hordeolum? And then if they're failing treatment, is that something that we should be draining?
1: I think that's a good question. I bet you if you asked 10 different doctors, they would answer differently. Some would say, sure, don't poke the eye be careful (laughs) but honestly a chalazion slash hordeolum slash dye they kind of get intermingled although typically uh chalazion is a cool cool like no longer inflamed and a hordeolum is technically more inflamed and hot still but you treat it like any abscess especially essentially um but i would say going externally would be important because internally you need special tools also the outer hip lid heals really really well and rarely scars especially with good technique so um so if you feel confident enough and the patient is just like get rid of this i want it gone i guess you could do it just obviously if you're comfortable with your skill um then I say okay. But most doctors probably would be more conservative using some sort of antibiotic because, yes, especially when they are still inflamed, an oral antibiotic is a good treatment because it has the antibiotic effect. Um, and typically, what those are are an uh, infected mybomian gland, so like a sty or like a pimple, I tell patients. Uh, Doxycycline is actually my first line of treatment because it has an anti MRSA effect, it's anti inflammatory, plus it helps thin the mybum in those glands. You could also potentially start them on a combo uh, eye drop, a steroid antibiotic, maybe a Tobredex or something, and then schedule a follow-up with ophthalmology if it does not return. Um, but it, I guess it's just kind of like your comfort level. I mean, they're kind of gross. They're kind of messy. So I, I would probably say no, don't do it, but it depends on where you are and what patient's access to health care they have. So if you are... If if uh, if
2: you are using doxycycline to to thin out the mybum and using lid massage and mm-hmm. or, and and warm packs, are you trying to kind of open up the the ostia in that gland so that it can drain through that, or like what exactly are you trying to do?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do- and
0: doxycycline what it what it does is it actually inhibits MMP9s which is an inflammatory mediator. So, um it it can it works by helping the oils by controlling inflammation. So, um you know, doxycycline is has an anti-infective obviously and anti-inflammatory um benefit. Um I I use doxy also. Um I might I actually first line go with the uh, like a Keflex or a Z-Pack, even um, so, you can do either. But I think you know the 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 take home here is a lot of times I'll get a Hordeola from uh, urgent care or emergency room, and they've given um, erythromycin ointment only. Uh, don't be afraid to prescribe an oral antibiotic. This is an internal infection, and I think you'll have much better success with with that. It's much less likely, in my opinion, to convert to a chalazion if you've given them a oral antibiotic.
2: But if it looks like there's a failure or it's pointing, it's like mm, that is just a nasty eye looking right at me. Not like the hordeolum itself looks like an eye. <laughs> Think, okay, just give it a little poke with an eleven blade. Don't go through the tarsal plate now. But uh, give
0: yes, go go ahead yeah. and see
2: if you can drain that. I wouldn't do.
0: You guys like to do this kind of stuff, huh? That's the vibe I'm getting. You're looking for anything. No, I want you to tell me, absolutely not. Do
2: not do. Do not do. do. (laughs) That's what I want you to say.
1: I I specifically asked my oculoplastic specialist what he said. And I mean, you know, plastics people are a little touchy. He said, do it. He said, do it. Don't poke the eye. Go through the outside. If you're careful, I mean, obviously, if they have a big scar, they come back and get mad at you. That's a different, like, you want to do it. With the least destructive, do the least harm, right? Do the least harm, exactly. But if if they've tried a lot and you feel confident that you could nicely do it, then you could try. But like any abscess, as I mentioned, it's it's gross. They're they're sticky and messy. We don't think
2: abscesses are gross. We actually we actually we think they're awesome. They're awesome. Abscess. (laughs) 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 uh, The more the more volcanic the eruption, the more satisfying we are with that. (laughs) So just a little poke. And, um, let's say if somebody does go through the tarsal plate and, and injure that, you I mean, they don't go through the, um, you know, the palpebral conjunctiva, but they, they, they go a little bit, a little bit too deep. What kind of problems are they going to cause?
1: You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure I could fully answer that. Can you repeat the question? What, what I, was,
2: what was it? If you went too deep and, uh, and you, you nicked or you cut the tarsal plate or you, you know, you went deep beyond just the superficial skin of the abscess.
0: Yeah. I, you know, for me, I think the, the thing that, you know, I'm concerned about most in that aspect is going to be muscle damage, you know, that that's going to affect the way the lid open and opens and closes. Um, the tarsal plates really not, you know, a, a big, big deal. Um, it's protecting, you know, the, 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 connection between, you know, the, the, uh, um, the preceptal region and the septal region behind the eye, um, behind the, um, the septum. Uh, so, you know, there is a risk for transmitting the microbes that are preceptal potentially to the, the, region behind the septum which of course could open the door to a orbital cellulitis so um, that could be a concern but just kind of messing around in there could affect the uh, the uh, muscles that open and close the eyelid and so
2: it's like it's a little poke and then walk away a little poke walk away it's like it's like <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite with uh, Rex Kwando when he says break the wrist walk away break the wrist walk away there you go
0: <laughs> poke squeeze and let's see you later Give an antibiotic, which you're gonna do anyway,
2: right? You're all, you're gonna give the antibiotic anyway. Well, let's let's talk some eye issues that we see pretty commonly in the emergency department, and starting off with absolutely the most common, which is the corneal abrasion. We see these in general on the initial presentation, and sometimes it's a little scratch. Sometimes it looks like somebody just peeled the surface of the cornea off. But when you take all comers and you think about, all right, just the general thought of a corneal abrasion, what's the natural history of these as you guys see them in follow-up?
1: You know, first of all, I want to say that a corneal abrasion sucks. It hurts so bad. And why? Because the cornea is the most highly innervated part of the body. Uh, it has the most sensory nerves and no receptors compared to anything else. So that makes obvious- It's the cornea? Yeah. Yeah,
2: I'm not what I thought.
1: I know. Fun fact of the day. There you go. But <laughs> <Fun fact. laughs> also, it's another an, another unique quality is that the cornea is avascular and immune privileged, meaning it has no blood blood vessels going through it. Thus, that's why we can see through it, and it is not able to quickly repair itself. Uh, in, in sorry sorry, not repair itself. It can repair itself well, but it can't heal an infection quickly. Um, Again, also promoting good vision. But natural history, wound repair involves a couple mechanisms, uh, all of which can quickly happen in the cornea. So within 24 to 48 hours, the cornea can heal a normal abrasion itself.
0: So I I think, you know, that that's a a great. You know, fact we love to tell people that you know not only is it the most highly innervated, but it's also one of the fastest reg regrowing, natural healing. So you're gonna be fine. You're gonna make it, even though you know you feel like your brain's gonna explode and you feel terrible. You're gonna you're probably gonna make it through. But we have some really fun ways uh, to keep people comfortable. Uh, so you know, one of the things that we'll see when they come back from the ER, the urgent care, um, you know, often they're they're given erythromycin or some lubricating gel, maybe a psychoplegic. Um, but we often try to take it to the next level, make that patient feel good. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Beebe, what do you do- normally do uh, to make somebody feel good?
1: So, when it comes to a corneal ab- abrasion, first of all, I'm going to figure out what happened. Did they, the dog paw scratch the eye? Did they scratch their eye while taking a contact out? Did a pe- plant particle scratch them while gardening? I think that's an important thing to ask. But- Things that I would generically do without some of the risk factors associated, and we'll go over those I'm sure in the future, would be I love to put a bandage contact lens in on a big scratch. Boom. Uh, that feels great. It feels like a Band-Aid, but covering the eye. Because the reason that the cornea doesn't heal itself as quickly as it could is because we have the abrasive force of our lid blinking across a scratch multiple times a minute, and that
2: actually helps or prevents the cornea from healing as quickly as it would. Wait, the bandage contact, is that? Is that something that I could put on a patient if we had access to that in the emergency department?
1: Ugh. I mean, with the ER, it's a little <laughs> tricky. I mean, you guys all, you don't end up getting to see them for follow-up because honestly, a bandage doesn't dissolve in the eye and you could get affected. And also, I sort of alluded to this, but if they're, let's say they had an abrasion, but it's actually an infection. They feel kind of similar. That can actually lead to more infection by leaving a bandage contact in. Or the so, herp. What'd you say, Jimmy?
0: I, I said, or it could be the herp.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Right, I mean, you know, it's hard to know, and and really the thing that you need to do as as far as learning natural history with the the abrasion is to see what it looks like under the slit lamp. So, you know, getting the stain on the eye, seeing what the abrasion looks like, is it an abrasion or is it a, a dendrite? You know, those are important things. So you need to be able to decipher that uh, by by observing its staining, which I think is you know what what Doctor Habibi is is uh, has so eloquently described.
2: It's interesting that you bring up corneal staining because that in and of itself seems like an art form. You know, you've got, you might have the drops, you might have the strips, but there's like this balance of, okay, you could put on you know, like a nano worth and maybe not see anything. But then if you put on a little bit too much, it's just like this big glob of salsa on the <laughs> eye and you, you can't, I mean, you can't see anything. So like, what's the, what's the right amount I mean, or is there a technique to make sure that you have the right application of fluorescein?
0: Yeah, I could, I could answer that. Um, you know, What I like to do, and everybody's a little bit different, but what I like to do generally gives a a nice, even amount, not too much, not too little, is I like to take the bottle of preparicane, actually. I like to put one drop of preparicane on the tip of the sodium fluorescein dye strip, and then take that strip and touch it to their lower um, palpebral conjunctiva. So pull their lower lid down, place it on the lower palpebral conjunctiva, and that often has plenty of solution, plenty of uh, dye to get onto the coronary. Now, the other thing thing is you want to give it some time to 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 actually stain. So you might want to wait five minutes even at the most um, to to allow for a really sufficient stain. Now, if it's an abrasion, you're going to see that light up right away. Um, but for some more subtle staining, you might want to wait a little bit longer. Five minutes is definitely sufficient. You're probably going to take a look right away and then maybe wait another minute or two um, and
2: see if it, the staining pattern has changed at all. So yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Giving time to stain—I've never actually thought of that because I figured I'll put the stain on; it's going to go in the crevice. You know, it's like the water's going to fill the canyon, or it's just going to just going to go off to the side. Like, why? Why would it take time to stain? Isn't it just it's either going to go in the defect or it's not?
0: Well, it's not only staining crevices and spaces; it's also staining devitalized cells. So, you know, there's there's stains that stain. You know, are taken up into the corneal cells that are are. Devitalized, their cell membranes are, are weak or leaky or open. And so you're, you're seeing that as well. And that might be what takes a little bit longer than, than just the, the wound or the open
2: area.
1: A scratch lights up like crazy right, right away.
2: Right. Is there ever a corneal abrasion that goes south? You know, if you're seeing it in a file, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the dreaded complication of the corneal abrasion. I don't know. I don't know if they can become corneal ulcers or whatever because we never see them. Again, So does that ever happen? And if it does, is there a particular characteristic of the initial injury where you can kind of predict that that might happen?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you could even venture to say that sometimes a corneal ulcer, you just never saw it in time, and it was an uh, uh, abrasion first and then became an ulcer because that's just – the cornea is a great barrier to protecting the – The cornea itself from getting infected So physically it's a barrier Uh, But Things that would make you more likely To have a bigger problem Would be when the abrasion was secondary To certain things For instance, abrasion secondary to a contact lens uh, Vegetative matter is a big one Because we know that plants have a lot of fungus Involved in them Uh, A foreign body also could cause An infection afterwards Because anything that's not supposed to be on the cornea that caused the abrasion you could you could get a secondary infection more easily because you already know that the the source is there to give you an infection
2: it's so interesting that you say that because i always kind of figured that using an antibiotic for a corneal abrasion was kind of bullshit because like oh you know i mean it, they probably just need some lubrication and it heals so fast on its own but maybe it's not bs
1: I think it's definitely not, I mean, not even think it isn't BS because we know there's such a critical period. I mean, the cornea we know heals itself typically within two days. So especially during those first two days, not only is it necessary for any infection, but it also honestly feels better when any, any sort of lubrication, whether it be a drop or even better an ointment. So erythromycin ointment is very lubricating and helps decrease a little of that friction, allowing the cornea to heal even quicker.
0: Yeah, and I think to add to that, you know, we would, uh, too, instead of just doing a antibiotic, you know, if you're looking at it through the slit lamp, and really that's the magic key to all of this conversation is the slit lamp, and a good slit lamp exam. So if you want to really up your eye game in the ER, you need to start kicking some butt at the slit lamp. Um, and really being able to utilize that and, and learning how to adjust the light and analyze the five layers of the cornea um, with, with specificity. If you can do that, you could throw that bandage lens on. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh but but you know it's it's understanding, you know, how deep that abrasion is um and, and going from there. And so when we see it, we're gonna throw a combo on. We're gonna almost always throw a combo drop on uh steroid antibiotic combination, make the patient feel better, slow down the inflammatory process, uh and and cover for infection. So almost always when we get them from you guys, they're covered for anti-infection, uh and they may feel a little bit better, but that steroid's gonna really make them feel even much better than that
2: i'd never heard of putting a steroid on a corneal abrasion and i guess my you know we will well frankly we almost never use a steroid on the eye without talking to you guys right it's just kind of good call. freaks us out good call <laughs> Ooh, okay it's part of your oath <laughs> I right i feel i, I feel validated um but, I would think that a steroid drop may impair healing, and if anything that I would do in addition to the antibiotic, it would be like a non steroidal drop
1: you know to like to not to go against what Jimmy said, but I'm pretty cautious whenever there is any open epithelial defect to start a steroid because you're right, a steroid does slow the healing of the cornea. But there are certain times where the inflammatory burden of just the abrasion itself is almost overwhelming to the cornea, preventing it from healing as well as it could, or it could be initiating some scar formation, and thus a steroid would be helpful. So, I mean, like Jimmy's saying, most people wouldn't start right away with a steroid, depending on where it is in the healing phase. but. On the further end of almost there, that's when a steroid would be acceptable with close monitoring.
2: Yeah. So what do you what do you think about using a topical NSAID? So in the emergency department, when we see these patients initially, the likelihood of us using a steroid in that is close to zero, asymptotically close to zero. I'll never say <laughs> good. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> zero. Um, we're going to do some sort of antibiotic uh, and usually it's erythromycin, although sometimes if it's vegetative matter, my practice has been to use tobermycin. I don't know if that makes any difference because I just think that it's a little bit more potent. Maybe, maybe not. Um, What do you think about the NSAIDs?
1: Honestly, topical NSAIDs, at least in my practice, I don't use them very often. Um, Topical NSAIDs, first of all, sting pretty bad. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just a little bit less likely to recommend that. In the first two or three days, that's when it hurts the most. Um, so to be to me for me I would rather put a bandage lens on if appropriate. Um, also, there are some studies or cases of patients having a corneal melt. Essentially, the NSAID causes um, some severe keratopathy, ulcers, ulcers, uh, melts, perforations. Typically, it's from prolonged use, but it's just less. That's just something I would be less like less inclined to treat with. You're um,
0: you're yeah. And you guys are taught, you know, like you said, never use a steroid. Uh, We're kind of this this don't overuse an NSAID thing or idea has been drilled into our heads, you know, that there's some risk of corneal melt. And if you really look at the data, it's paltry. You know, the the, the actual number of individuals who have had corneal melts, there's like five of them, you know. Are you
2: saying saying melt like a patty melt with a T on the end of it? Like the cornea actually Melts. Literally like, melts. Yeah. Literally. I've
0: I've seen a corneal melt and I'm sure I know Dr. Habibi has as well. I've had a melt in my office and you know I'm relatively new to practice. You you don't want a corneal melt. Um it's it's not a good thing. It wasn't because of an NSAID, this was because of a non-healing um neurotrophic uh herpes zoster case. Uh but basically, you know, you can have a melt when the cornea just basic way basically eats away at itself um either because of inflammation or of an infection uh or a reaction
2: to a medicine so we're going to now take a little time machine and go back 20 years When I first started learning how to treat corneal abrasions, (laughs) what we did for all those people was we put on a patch. We actually put on two patches. We would fold a cotton patch in half, and then we put another patch on top of that, and we would tape the eye closed. And then all this literature came out and said, you don't need a patch. Patch doesn't make a difference. Patch might even decrease the amount of oxygen that the cornea is getting. But I'll tell you what. There are some people, they love the patch like Eric Cartman loves snacky cakes. I tell
1: you what.
2: I tell you, get get in there and get me a patch. <laughs> so, so I wonder. Uh, and you're talking about you know putting a contact on the cornea, and the patch is almost like it's the, same the thing. poor man's contact. Yes. So, what do you what do you think about using a patch? I mean, bringing the old school back. I think it's terrible. Don't do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's terrible. I I think here's what I you know from a comfort standpoint, you're hitting a home run right because you're stopping the the friction of the lids over the cornea. So you, it it makes sense, it absolutely makes sense what you're doing. It's just there's a better way. And you could probably look out your door and throw a rock and hit three eye doctors that would love to put a contact lens on that abrasion, make the patient feel better. So, you know, make friends with your local eye doctor or get really good at slit lamp, put the lens on yourself and send them for, you know, appropriate follow-up. But but that's the standard of care in my opinion. Get a lens on there. Now, I will say there's one other really cool thing that we're doing, and this is really neat. This is um, amniotic membrane uh, placement. Now, most times, this is not something you're going to do right away, um, but it is. It is something that can be done if the abrasion isn't healing after a day or two, with with a c- contact lens on, or maybe you didn't put a contact lens on and it's getting worse. Um, you know, uh, it, it's it, it's actually human placental tissue that's been preserved, cut placed on, on a round uh, plastic ring and placed on the eye, or a, a dried membrane that you could then put under a contact lens and put on the eye. It's naturally anti-inflammatory, has growth factors in it. It's it's really, really cool. And the main idea with this is to heal it faster, uh, strengthen it, and
2: uh, provide better outcomes. I feel like I'm doing caveman. <laughs> <laughs> I care compared to what you're talking about but you know what let me tell you those, 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 those cavemen and women I, they did okay our ancestors they, they made it well
1: I think that about does it thanks again Rob for letting us join you for that awesome podcast but before we go of course I'd like to say thanks to Valley Contacts for their support not only for making amazing lenses but also the awesome people they are to work with be sure to tune in and listen to our next podcast the last episode of our spooky month, tune in, figure out what that is. But until then, try not to blink.